Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Sunitha Chandy, a licensed clinical psychologist at Artesian Collaborative, who has been working with diverse people and communities since 2000 to help them tap into their resources during painful, intense situations. She specializes in developmental psychology, cross-cultural engagement, and high-risk populations, and helps teams, even those in intense conflict, come to a place of shared understanding and engagement. She believes that understanding our identities, cultural context, and unique situations is vital in achieving effective and sustainable growth. She helps her clients authentically care for themselves, their families, and their communities. This was a great deep dive into mental health, into trauma, how to identify it, how to get through it, and the lessons that you can learn from it, as well as talking about leadership and what it means to be an effective leader and, and how to really guide your team through their own mental health to get to a successful outcome, to help them show up in their best way as their best selves and perform at their highest level. There's a ton in here. I really hope you enjoy it. Here is Dr. Sunitha Chandy. And I am here with Dr. Sunitha Chandy. Very much looking forward to this conversation today. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. want to jump right in. Um, I've had psychotherapist on here before who was the woman who introduced us. And I know that every psychologist, therapist kind of comes at their work from a little bit of a different perspective. And just wondering if you could help define right off the bat, kind of like what, what is the work that you're doing and, and how have you focused your career? Yeah, I am really passionate about helping people think through tense moments. So I've really been interested in thinking about how do we grow and oftentimes the way that we grow is through tension. So a lot of my work with clients, it's a mix of helping them identify what are the strengths and assets that they have, and also what are the barriers that they're facing, and how do we use those strengths and assets and develop new skills so they can navigate through tension and pain versus avoiding it. So that's a lot of uh, the framework I use when I work with clients. And what type of clients are you working with? generally? Because I, I, I understand you have kind of a broad range. Yes. Yeah, so in our company, we sort of have these few different places that we work. So we work with individuals, couples, and families. So that's one set of our clients. But we're also really interested on how do you take psychotherapy and psychological science outside of the therapy room. So we also work with community organizations and nonprofits, also companies and startups, we're interested in how do we bring the same sort of idea of mental health across the board to different environments. So yeah, we define clients really broadly right now. Is it, so you say bring the same definition of mental health. Is it the same when working with a young person versus an older person? Is there a, a difference in how you're doing that work or the principles that apply? Or is it the same across the board of humanity, no matter how old you are? You know, I think the foundation of the work, helping people self-reflect, explore where they're at, their resources, and the challenges in front of them, that aspect is the same. But I do think depending on where we are in our development, it can shape what, how we're seeing the world, right? And we have this lovely myth that when we get into our older years that we're done. We're fully established. We understand everything. We're baked. Easy, we're, yeah, it's yeah. easy sailing. And anyone who is older than 20, older than 30, older than 40 or 50 are going to be very happy to correct us that 
growth is always happening in our life. Development actually never stops. It doesn't stop until we die. And so I, I love the fact that there are nuances about the culture we bring in, depending on when we were born. But the work of understanding ourselves, understanding our situation and living towards our values, that aspect doesn't necessarily change, even if you're working with children. It makes me think about the, the folks who do think that they're fully baked you know, once they hit adulthood. That reminds me of the quote, which I'll probably get wrong, but it's something like, most men die at 25. We just bury them 50 years later. I think, honestly, it's the way we're raised. I think there's this great myth that's like, if you just make it through this point, then you'll get your job, you'll get married, you'll have your 2.5 kids, and then life will be... And we don't really ever answer that question. Yeah, something. And that's why when you hit your midlife, you're sort of like, oh, I thought I was supposed to be done. I thought this was supposed to be perfect. It's not. What do I do now? It's the myth of arrival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've said it on here before, but when I first started at the company I work for now, I was 25 years old and I was selling to people who were often 20 plus years older than I was. And it can be a little bit intimidating to walk into those rooms. And I realized at some point, I don't, there was no like one aha moment, but I just realized like, oh, these people don't have it all figured out. They don't necessarily know it all. They're not reading some crystal ball that I don't have access to or some wisdom that they've gained from their years of experience that like suddenly they know all this stuff. They're just making the best decisions they can. Like, I think I was watching people just make educated decisions and going, well, I think this is the right path. We'll try it. And being like, oh, I could do that now. I have less experience than they do. So I have less perspective, but we're all just doing the best we can with the information we have. And so there's no, there is no moment where you sort of reach the pinnacle, which is empowering and also very frustrating. Yeah, <laughs> sort of I, disappointing if you've grown up in that expectation. Well, and I do think the wisest people I have met are people who are really humble, right? They recognize that they're still growing and they're still learning but they can look back and say like, yeah, this is a lesson. This is something I keep carrying with me. This is how I've established things. But it's very rare that I've met someone who's like, this is the way to live where there aren't some holes that yeah. you could fall into. If you or some big life. insecurity they're covering, covering up for. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it's amazing on here, on this show, how many times humility has come up. That's actually probably been somebody asked me the other day, you know, what have you learned from doing the show? And I've done, I think you're my 24th or 25th interview. And it amazes me how many times humility comes up as one of, if not the key value. And it's had me doing a lot of self reflection too, because I think that's something that I can work on quite a bit. And, you know, came up in the first five minutes of our conversation again here. So only reinforce that. So, if people are the same kind of with young and old people, I think this is a good time to get into a topic that I really want to talk about, which is trauma. Because my understanding is you do a lot of work in and around trauma. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. How do you define trauma? Yeah. So we have the clinical definition of trauma, and then we just have the everyday way the word is used. So when we're thinking about diagnosing trauma, one of the first main characteristics we're looking for is the idea that you feel that your life or the life of someone close to you is at threat of serious harm. So that's the first category of when we think about something that is traumatic. Now, when you're thinking about diagnosing, does someone have a traumatic disorder like PTSD? Um, what we have to realize is that when someone experiences a trauma, something where they feel like there's credible information that their life, the life of someone else is at significant harm, PTSD isn't actually the main diagnosis that you'll see. Depression and anxiety are two sort of responses to trauma that happen. So there are often a wide variety of things that fall under the umbrella of trauma. We use the word a lot in society, sometimes just to describe something that was really impactful or terrifying. When we're thinking about a trauma, we're looking at the long lasting impact. The way I often think about it, it's the idea of, I don't know if anyone here at listening has been in an earthquake. I'm a Californian. I grew up in California. Trauma is the feeling that the ground is not stable anymore. It's something that majorly disrupts your view of the world. 
And that's actually why you see such extreme reactions to trauma, because that sense of safety that you just had in a moment is gone. And now you're scrambling to find a way to anchor yourself again. So I think that's probably the best way uh, that I've used to define trauma. I think that was great. And one of the things that I was thinking through as I was prepping for this conversation is I have just heard and read and seen more and more about the impact of trauma on people's development and how they present to the world. And to your point on depression and anxiety and in all of these negative behaviors that have had some pretty big stigmas attached to them, but have are starting to move into a direction of acceptance where they can then get worked on. But I also am starting to see the definition of trauma bleed out a little bit and start to expand into things that maybe don't fit into your definition of putting your your life or your physical being in significant danger. Where do you see the conversation of trauma right now? And what's the most productive way that we should be thinking about evaluating trauma? That's a good question because there is something really key in our definition that's about perception, right? Do I perceive myself to be safe? And we know from our experience that some people are really big risk takers. So they're in situations that they're like, yeah, no big deal. I'm totally fine, right? I'm trained for this. It doesn't bother me. I'm okay. And if you put me in that situation, I'm not feeling safe. I'm not feeling okay, right? So we recognize that the perspective piece plays a big role. I think this is actually why in our culture, we can have a lot of struggle with the discussion about trauma and also what do we do with it? Because part of the idea is like, where are we setting up things to protect people from information that could be seen as traumatic or upsetting? And where are we working to build resilience, And I think that's often when we struggle with how are we defining trauma? Are we defining it clinically? Are we taking each individual's definition? Part of, I think, where we struggle with it isn't necessarily the definition, but what do we do with it? And that's it's that distinction between when do we help somebody kind of buck up and build resistance? And when do we help somebody get the treatment that they need because of an underlying trauma that is significant. And I think, you know, there's being in war, there's being sexually assaulted or physically assaulted, like some of those things, it's like, okay, that's, I think we can all agree. I don't think there's anybody who would disagree that those are traumatic experiences, but it's like when, when you go a level or two below that, it's like, where do we draw that line? And, and how do you think about when to help somebody build resilience versus when to maybe deal with their trauma. Yeah. And I think our goal is always to be working towards building resilience. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things that I have learned in the work that I've done in trauma, both in just the training of working with traumatized children and then the work I've done with adults, but even in communities, is that our goal is never to leave someone in a place of saying, hey, you've had such a bad life, you really can't do anything. I feel like all of my experience has shown me that people have resiliency and that you can go through something so horrendous and still have beautiful things and amazing things grow out of your life. And so there's this really tough balance of the research of the fact that like, if you experience trauma as a child, there's just a whole host of risk factors that you're going to deal with. There's the foundational study, the ACEs study that just highlighted all the health disparities of just experiencing trauma as a child and how that can affect your mortality rate and your just quality of life as you get older. And so we have these research studies that almost tell us like, hey, you're totally screwed. And then we have all this amazing research that talks about grit and resilience and perseverance. And so I'm always in this place of like, when someone's expressing, hey, this is really traumatic or really hard for me, I think our goal is to really look at two things. What assets and resources does that individual or that community have to cope with what they're experiencing? Because trauma isn't just an event. It's like how is it in our body? It's our cortisol levels. It's how we respond to things. And so the first step is like, how are we containing and putting resources to help us individually deal? But then it is really mapping out how do we move through that tension? 
right? That there is a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship, a lot of difficult stuff we have to face, but it's in the process of facing it slowly, carefully, and thoughtfully that that's actually how we build strength. I use a lot of plant metaphors in the work that I do. I think it's helpful, but new plants are so delicate. Like they're so fresh and so soft. It's only being slowly exposed to the environment that they can toughen up but you don't want your plant to toughen up so much that it dies. There's this process of balancing that softness and growth with getting used to the environment you're in. And so I do think it's almost this like cyclical developmental process. I love thinking about development, that it's not this either or, or a single step. Like we're constantly in these reiterations of like, how am I caring for myself? How am I stepping forward? Now here are the new situations I'm in okay, what's stressful here? What's hard for me here? How am I recognizing that? How am I responding to that? How am I stepping forward? Like that's the process of being resilient. So it's a mix of both. So it sounds like it's, it's essentially teaching people how to be resilient through their traumas rather than allowing them to be victimized by their traumas. Yeah. And I think oftentimes it's really important for us to see the cost of trauma. I mean, there's a lot of research out now talking about racial trauma and the impact of like historic or chronic racial violence and how that can affect people of color and other marginalized groups. And there's the reality of like, this is impacting how you're functioning, but there is this place of like, okay, how do we look also at what gets built through moving through these difficult things? So there are risk factors, but there are also strengths that come out when we face adversity and we make it through. And I think sometimes we forget to capitalize on those strengths alongside the costs. Well, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. So what are the strengths that come with those experiences? I often think there's a sensitivity and I I love that word because most of us hate it depending on what context we use. No one wants to be told you're so sensitive, right? But it's the same way of saying you're so receptive, you're so aware. And so I do think trauma can sensitize us to what's happening in the environment. And when we're able to use that sensitivity to be responsive, that's actually when we can build teams really well. When you look at a lot of leaders who have really good insight of catching things, they are more emotionally sensitive. And we have the option when we face a trauma to shut ourselves down. That's actually a really common coping strategy when we face big stressors is we just turn ourselves off. But as we learn to be aware of our sensory system, it can actually help us catch things and be more responsive. I think too, whenever we go through hard things, it makes us boil down to our values. We have to ask ourselves the question is why? Why would I go through this? Why would I keep going? And I think that's when people start to unearth their values right? Because this is who I am. This is what I value. This is what I care about. And when you have a solid ground of your values, that's actually what helps you step into more difficult situations. I think about companies that we work with or even entrepreneurs, that work is all about stepping into tension and stepping into risk and stepping into hard times. I don't know any, any company that's like, oh no, our job is always easy. It's very (laughs) simple there's no risk involved in this. Like there is something about knowing like, hey, this value, this core belief I have, it's strong enough that I will work through this difficult thing to come on the other end. So there's a lot of perseverance and often gratitude. If you've gone through something really hard, you can curate the ability to really appreciate things when they're going well. So I work with a leadership coach, which I've talked about probably on a third of the episodes here. Um, But what what they preach is having a strong mental psychological core. And what they mean by that is really understanding who they are, who you are as an individual, what you value, and then being, once you have that defined, then you can react to the things coming at you in the world in a much easier way, which seems like very similar to what you're saying here about really understanding yourself and your values. How do you lead your clients through that type of work to define who they are and their values? What does that look like? Yes. Well, sometimes what it looks like, especially in the midst of hardship, is looking at past situations of like, what kept you going? 
right? In the end, what really matters? And the few things we start queuing in on are relationships, right? We're social beings. So how we connect to each other is a key way for us to find what we value. But I also think having people tap into what they were taught about the world growing up, like we get a lot of our initial views and values about the world, how we live from our families. And that doesn't mean we agree with what our families taught us. And so I always, this is what I love about talking about things like identity is some of us, we got taught something we're like, yes, this worked for my parents. Like, you know, my caregivers worked really hard and this was a thing that moved them forward. It moves me forward. And other times for us, it's like, I don't want to be like that. Well, why don't you want to be like that? What is it that drives you to be different? And that, those are some of the ways, but I absolutely agree with your leadership coach that having that sense of who you are, and that's something we're constantly building, right? And I I love the idea of like, our core is what keeps us from falling over. And so when we're like walking that tightrope, sometimes we start leaning too far to one side and we know that we're off our base of our core because we start to flounder. And so I often have my clients looking at, how are you feeling emotionally? How's your health right now? Are the things that you're doing or pursuing leading to that sense of instability or is it leading you to feel more centered? And how do you pull yourself back up to that centered place? And, and that makes me think about another offshoot of that same conversation, which is, and I can't remember which book this came from, but there was essentially kind of a diagram where it talks about if there's a line, horizontal line, and everything below the line are the values and beliefs that you have intrinsically. And everything above the line is all the bullshit <laughs> that has been put on you, you know, that, that your parents told you was important, that society sort of led you to believe you should want or value. And the more that you live below the line, the more happiness you have and the more mental health, you, the better your mental health, the more you live above the line, the more things start to get squirrely. And you know, thinking about that analogy and, and you can see people who are starting to show signs of having some kind of, you know, issues with how they're feeling about themselves. It's often because they're not living in the way, in their true authentic self. And if you like, I, I sort of look around with that lens and you're like, oh, that's interesting. That's why these people are starting to behave this way or those people are starting to behave that way. And then when I think about my own life, it's like, oh yeah, if I can just get down below that line and just let all that other stuff go, I just start to feel more intrinsically satisfied with myself. I think that's a good point. And I think it's helpful to point out too, is that you might feel more intrinsically satisfied, but it still comes at a cost, especially depending on if you're still in the communities that are putting the pressure on you, right? And so there's this added piece of how do we understand where those pressures come from from our community, from our families, from our workplaces, or just ideolo- like ideologically, like this is who you are as a business person. Like that comes not maybe from our parents, but just from society in general. There's a place to say that sometimes when we choose not to live that way, there's some pushback, right? If I choose to live my authentic self and my family does not like that, how do I grapple with why? Um, I ask all these why questions and always want to clarify, not the judgmental why, like, why do you do that? But this curiosity of like, okay, why? Why does that come from my family? Is this just like, you have to be this or we can't accept you? Or is it part of their framework of understanding the world? And can I find a way to navigate this internal drive while still staying connected to the communities I'm part of? And I think that's um, just personally as someone who you know, grew up as a second generation. My parents are immigrants. We had plenty of opportunities where their value and drive for me did not match mine. And yet when I could connect to why they wanted this for me, I could find a way to marry these like intrinsic drive with that underlying value, even though I knew they were going to be disappointed in the things I was choosing. Do you have an example that you might be willing to share on what one of those disparities was and how you tied it together? Oh, yeah. I mean, I distinctly remember in college meeting with a therapist myself of working through what do I do when my parents are disappointed in the fact that I'm defining success really differently than them. Like, I definitely had the privilege of having parents who made some pretty significant sacrifices 
and for their children. That's what they would say. They would highlight, like, we came here, we came to this country, we worked hard so that you could be successful. And hitting a point where I was like, I'm really passionate about community mental health and I want to work in underserved communities. And this is not what is going to be seen as successful. This is not going to be that top dollar job. My parents were classic Indian. So they were like medical doctor. You know, that's what I was tagged to be because I was not as good at math as my sisters. So they were tagged to be engineers and they were both on track doing what they're supposed to do to become amazing engineers. And I was like, I want to study psychology. I want to be a therapist. (laughs) not at all part of things. But it was a wonderful process of really recognizing they were concerned and worried. They were not happy with those choices. And I had to sit with that. And I felt the pressure to conform. I saw the sacrifices that they had made. And and it was such it's a such a wonderful story to share now because that initial decision was very hard. And then for them to see how that was leading to success and leading to things that fit all the values that they had taught me and really cared about. Like now they probably, if they listen to this, it will be like, what do you mean? We were always behind you. We always knew you could do that. That those were moments of tension of choosing to follow those intrinsic values, knowing it would hit a conflict. And I, I'm sure my parents could probably give you a hundred more examples of things that I have done that they've not liked, that have not followed under those, those pressures that they've had to tolerate. Um, and it hasn't always been easy. I think there's a great place of like, I don't want it to be easy. I think that's what we forget. I don't want anyone to suffer the impact of trauma and feel that disruption. But I don't want anyone to run away from tense moments. Like that's growth moments. We can remember puberty. It sucked. It was tense. It was awkward. And I don't think anyone's like, yes, I will go through that again. I loved having giant arms and being four feet tall. Like there's this place of like, but we stepped into it and then we grew. I don't know. I love, I, I, that's what gets me passionate is like these tough moments can just be tough. They can just be destructive or they can be a catalyst for us to grow. But as adults, that growth sometimes takes a really long time. We won't feel happy the whole time, but I do think we feel meaningful, right? Like that, that's what I love. It's like, we can get to meaning. We can't always get to happiness. Happiness comes and goes, but joy, meaning, feeling accomplished. I think those are things that are really valuable for our mental health. How do you coach somebody to embrace pain? You know, that, that acute pain and, and to understand when it's pain and not injury. Hmm. Well, I think there's a place too that it's recognizing that feelings are just alarms. They're just meant to tell us that something is happening. And so if an alarm is going off, and I think when we experience pain, that is a loud, piercing, painful alarm. The first thing that we want to do is respond to it versus just ignore it right? It's one thing to have an alarm ringing in your ear all day and you're spending all day just looking ahead and ignoring that the alarm is ringing. But there are some alarms that ring that we just can't turn all the way off, right? And so part of the first step is what can we do to soothe this? Because feelings are alarmed. They're they're not meant to last forever. We're not meant to just soak ourselves into feeling horrible or do things that add to horribleness, which is often what we do, right? We feel really down and super sad. So we just lay around in the bed. It's much different to realize, oh, I feel super sad and really down. I'm going to wrap myself in this really cozy blanket and I'm just going to comfort myself. And so our feelings are pulling for responses. But I would actually say, we need to assess to see if there is an injury. And oftentimes like that is another metaphor that's often used for trauma. Like trauma is an injury and injuries require time and effort to heal. But oftentimes what happens when we experience something traumatic because we think of feelings as bad versus feelings as natural, we don't control our feelings. They just happen. What we do is we just slap a Band-Aid over that injury. But if it's a real injury and you fell and scraped your leg, there's some dirt in there. And if you just leave it covered up, it's going to get infected. It's going to get swollen. It's going to lead to some serious things. And so oftentimes in the process, 
I do let clients know that sometimes the process of peeling off this bandage, a lot of the stuff is going to hurt. And the first thing that we're going to do is clean out this wound. And if it's really bad, we're going to do some stuff that's going to help numb out that pain. We're going to add a ton of coping, a ton of soothing. This isn't meant to solve the problem. It's meant to give you the space and stamina so that you can actually tolerate the cleaning healing process. I think of like medical doctors back in like the 1800s and it's like, bite this stick. It's like this, it's going to hurt. And I, I think I, I want them to say, and if we're not going to make anyone hurt just for fun, if it's a pain you can run away from, run away from it. There's no point in dealing with it. The point of cleaning something out is so you can have full function again, right? We can live with scars. We honestly can live with injuries. We just have to be aware of them and learn how to adjust how we move to protect our bodies. So that that's a lot of what, when I talk to clients about listening to their pain, is that we have wonderful skills of just observing. Often what causes pain to hurt the worst is we fight it. So now we have our pain and all the fighting. And so sometimes we can give a lot of relief. It's like, what is it like just not to fight and just let it be? So that's part of it. I mean, I think this is, I'm not selling therapy to anyone right now. And I'm like, it's going to hurt really bad. It's the healing part that we look for. It's the things can grow. There are horrendous injuries that can just heal over with the scar. And that is, that's amazing. That is like the resilience in people and communities is pretty darn amazing to see. But the process is painful, but it's only painful for a purpose. So we spend a lot of time going back to the why. Why are we doing this? Like, and giving lots of opportunities through the process to have that soothing. The same thing with trauma, right? How do you have a safe place to be cared for? But we don't just want to leave you there. We want to grow you into where you want to be. How do you deal with somebody who's on the other side of that fence, who comes in and feels like they've been significantly injured and you're kind of like, I think what we need here is the resilience and to get out of the mindset that these things are all injuries. It's practice, right? I, get, I, I love behavioral therapy. I love giving people things to do. And I think there's a place where the type of clients I probably am not the best therapist for is the person who just wants to come and vent, right? There are great places to go and just be like, this is horrible and everyone's against me. Often my response is like, okay, what if everyone is against you? Who are you? Who do you want to be? How can you still move towards your goals? And if the goal is just to be like, it's their fault, well, they're not in my office. I can't help them, but you're here. So even I always go like, I don't know, I'm not in their life. Maybe everyone is actually against them. Maybe these things are all being purposely done. I think that's a part for me, like, I don't know. I don't see everything clearly. I don't get to follow my clients around in their workplace. That would probably be very strange. That I would say, even if it's true, even if this pain is there and these people are doing these things, and in some cases, yes, this is reality, how are you going to be who you are? Right? Are you going to choose to let other people's decisions stop you from being who you are or working towards what you want? And you may not be able to get what you want the way you want it. So either you give up or you find another way around. And if the thing that you're working to get isn't worth changing your course, then let's focus on the stuff that is worth it. Maybe this thing doesn't matter as much. Because if the only way you're willing to get it is that way and we're running into a brick wall and you don't have a way to break a brick wall, then okay, you're not going to get it. Let's focus on the stuff you're willing to buy a jackhammer for and climb over things for. Like That's, that's a lot of what we look at because I want people to find that place of empowerment. Right? If these barriers are real, then who do you need to be to persevere to find a fix? And if you don't have the energy or space for that, how do you take care of yourself so you can build it or move towards building the things that you are more passionate about and have the endurance to stick with? What do the exercises look like? You, you mentioned behavioral therapy where you're telling people to go do stuff. What could somebody listening to this do to begin to build that mindset and that resiliency and that energy towards something that is a positive outcome? Yeah. So I would say like, I'm trying to think of a good example for this. 
if someone is saying like, nobody ever listens to me, like my opinion doesn't matter at all. Like everyone's always, you know, putting their foot forward. Okay. So let's say like, maybe that's happening. What is it that you care a lot about saying? What's the thing that you're passionate about you think is being ignored? Let's work on what are all the different ways you can express that and do things about that in this week. So we're going to sit down. We're going to make a list of how does this show up? How do you stand up for this? What are all the different possible ways if you feel like people aren't listening to you that you can consistently put this thing forward? Is that through emails? Is that through other organizations, other places? And their goal is to track when they did it, what happened, and how did it feel? Because the goal is not to say you're not going to hit pushback or you're not going to have... like People are going to be like, oh my goodness, that is wonderful. Why didn't we listen to you? What we're looking at is what does it feel like for you to stand firm? I'm moving this forward. And oftentimes what will happen when I say, hey, let's do that. Well, I can't because this or this will happen. Great. Now we know what we're working on. Okay. Let's talk about what your worry is going to happen. Let's talk about those interpersonal relationship dynamics. Let's practice how you can approach this conversation. So let's work on relaxing your body, your mind, communication strategy. So that's, that's an example. I don't know if you have a specific situation. I can No, I, I don't have a specific situation, but that makes me think about the book Extreme Ownership, which I really like, which is basically preaching that if you want to be a leader, you need to take ownership of everything. It doesn't mean you have to do everything, but the person above you makes a mistake you know, could you have given them more information? Could you have set them up in a better way? If a person beneath you makes a mistake, could you have prepped them better? Could you have leaned in and taught them better skills along the way that would make them more equipped? If somebody who's a peer of yours makes a mistake, could you have coached them, pulled them aside, done something to help them? Like just taking ownership of everything that's going on in your sphere of influence. And it sounds similar to what you're saying. It's like, find out what you can take control of. And try to take control of as much that you can control as possible. Yeah, it's a lot of the serenity prayer that we're going to throw out here, right? Yeah, I love that. There's a huge aspect of accepting we can't control everything. And again, like to the stuff we've been talking about with trauma, that's one of the most distressing things. It's like this horrendous thing happened and either I should have been able to stop it or I couldn't. And that's really disruptive for us. And yet we live in a world, we're living in a season where there's tons of stuff that's happening around us that we have zero control over. There is something so helpful about what can we have accountability for? And I love that ownership over because when we can at least control that, I think exactly, we feel better. We feel more connected. We can't control everything, but when we control what we can, that at least moves our goals forward. Thank you. So let's get into translating this into the corporate world because the name of this show is People Business. And it's all about distilling down what's going on within human beings and how they interact to each other and then how you can position that in the workforce. And when you talk about the workforce, it gets a little tricky because everybody's showing up with all of the things that we're talking about. But we're not really supposed to talk about that. And we're not really... There's not much that we can do as bosses and managers and colleagues to like help somebody through their trauma. So as leaders or as managers who are in charge, air quotes, in charge of a group of other people, how should we be thinking about the mental health of our people? And what does good leadership from a mental health standpoint look like in the workplace? That's a great question. A lot of the companies we work with are really thoughtful about the fact that tension is hitting their employees. And if they don't equip them with tools to navigate through that tension, they're not always going to be able to deal with it well, right? A lot of what I would say to HR leaders, to team leaders is you're right. Your workers are trying to show up and fit in and seem great and be productive and life is still happening. A lot of what can be helpful is really changing how we talk about emotions in the workplace. Again, we look at emotions so much in American culture as weaknesses. We even describe good feelings and bad feelings versus I was at a training and they're like, can we just talk about them as natural feelings? We have emotions throughout the day. 
And they're meant to just guide us and help us bring our best forward. So I love uh, having companies think through, how are you just talking your workers through emotion regulation and basic coping? So even for a lot of companies with COVID, they went from their normal everyday functioning live to everybody's working remote. Everyone's dealing with assignments, shifting their family life. So stress levels were through the roof. So a lot of the advice is, how are you teaching people or giving space to say, hey, let's just recognize that we're all feeling heavy. There's a lot going on. What can we do in small moments throughout our day to help recenter ourselves so we can bring our best forward, right? Are there places and processes where people can feel safe to say, hey, there's this really heavy, crazy thing happening in my life right now. I may need a moment. I may need some time. And for a supervisor or a boss, but great, you know, like here are some strategies that we use in the workplace to help you, you know, like to help give you a quick break to come back in. A lot of that is really simple. I mean, we were doing calls for companies uh, and just switching to the virtual world about, hey, it takes two seconds to just take, oh, it's probably more than two seconds, 10 seconds to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out or to stand up and walk away from your computer screen and come back. Like small behaviors that help refocus the mind of realizing like these are just alarms, these are just feelings. If we give a moment to recognize them, we can do something so that we can be present. Because sometimes work can serve as a distraction to whatever else is happening. Um, But if the thing is too big, your workers are going to do better if they have a moment of space and come back in to be able to bring their best in. People who've gone through trauma, who are struggling with depression and anxiety still can be amazing workers. It's only when the level of intensity gets bigger than their container to hold it, then they need supports to build out that container. And so companies can be thinking about, do we have general resources of when we're giving people time to check in or taking time to validate that people are doing well, especially in a season of of high crisis or tension, having your teams just talk about how they appreciate each other and who's been helping each other out. Because I can't always see that in myself when I'm struggling, but someone else who works with me, that validation means a lot more. So I think those are some things that companies can be doing, but it is hard because we don't want to bring our trauma into the workplace. We don't want to be judged for it. So let's talk about that because we don't want to be judged for it. And yet there's, there should be a way that we can communicate it. So let's say we're the individual who's going through something. How do we express that to our boss in a way that doesn't feel like it's overexposing us, but allows us to process the emotions that we're feeling? Yeah. And I think this is where the concept of psychological safety becomes really real, right? Can you define that? Yeah. So psychological safety is, I would really, in the way I think about it, is that feeling that it is safe for me to bring myself forward, that there is space for this. We often talk about psychological safety when we're talking about uh, diversity and inclusion work, is that if it doesn't feel safe for me to talk about an identity, I'm not bringing it up, right? If I'm going to put something out here and it's not going to be held, it's going to be stepped on, that causes more damage or feels like it causes more damage than me just holding it in. And so a lot of what we're looking at is can there be space for teams to feel safe? And we have to realize there's a power differential is that if you are the manager or the boss, there's a power differential and your workers are not likely to disclose something that hasn't yet been made safe to talk about. And this is the hardest part because managers, VPs, all of them are also dealing with life. They may also have trauma and difficult things. And it's on them to start with that humility and vulnerability to open the door. Uh, I think that's why safety is hard to build because it requires vulnerability and it requires investment, mutual investment. And I think for leaders... To create that safety can be scary because it's like, what if none of my employees join me? To me, it seems like if you're a leader and you are not doing some form of work on yourself, then you are missing the boat. 
Like you're, you're not really being an effective leader. It seems like you can't be if you haven't done some kind of work on yourself to figure out who you are, how you want to communicate, how you like being communicated to, just being thoughtful about the interpersonal dynamics of yourself is like the prerequisite to helping guide other people. It's like the saying, you know, you can't lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. Yeah, I think so. And I I think it's hard because we still have these really old school models of leadership where it's almost like the mascot. You're like, let me just put on this dragon costume. Now I'm a leader and I must always look perfect like this, you know, stuffed animal walking around. When like I love your even your podcast name. Like this is about people and we don't do well when someone is disingenuous, right? There isn't this like out of the box boss, but most people in leadership positions feel all this pressure to be this something. I think imposter syndrome is such a thing. We talk about it a lot with people who are young and new in their careers. I think it is so important to talk about that with people who are in managerial VP, the C-suite positions, because we just have this picture of who they're supposed to be and they are just people. And so I think creating a framework where you're allowed to still be growing is so helpful as a leader because if you can't make a mistake, you can't lead, right? How do you define leadership? Oh gosh, that's a great question because I think there's so many different ways. Not necessarily style, right? Because I think when people define leadership, they often think of leadership style. But like, what is the, what is the ultimate purpose of a leader? I think a leader's job is to set the framework so the people that they are leading are able to do their best. There's almost this like caretaking, it sounds weird to say administrative role, but your job is to look at your people and care for their needs, highlight their strengths, look out for their weaknesses so that they can bring their best into the work that they're doing, right? And I do think that's why it requires us to do that same assessment in ourselves. Like you lead yourself first. You're the first person you ever have the opportunity to lead. Like this is why I love like proactive and behavioral work because that is exactly what it is. It's like getting yourself to take the steps to control your situation, that it's the responsibility you have over the people on your team to grow with you. And I think that's the key because we aren't at that point yet. And maybe someone here is who has the wisdom to perfectly see other people. We only see the horizon we can. So we are constantly checking different things and learning things. But I do think it's about bringing the best in those who are under you so they can do amazing work. Going back to psychological safety, is there anything that you can do as a non-leader to help build psychological safety in the group? Mm -hmm. I oftentimes think that it is the non-leaders that have a key role in building psychological safety. And I think this is where, when we can have a communal perspective can be really helpful. I do think oftentimes we look to someone to do something or change something. I think having grace and vulnerability and, and that authenticity can really help. When you have someone on your team that just asks the question or checks in with someone or uses their skills of observation to be like, hey, you know, like Sherry's been really quiet. I'm wondering something's going on. I'm just going to go touch base with her. I'm going to create a space of safety. We've worked on teams where we've just had the people, the people we're with that just make it feel safe or make it feel comfortable. That's a skill set that you don't have to be a leader to create that space of openness and support. So one more question on that, because I know I asked you before, if you're an individual, what are the types of things you can say? So let's say you're the leader now, or you're even just a concerned peer. What does it look like to check in with somebody? Hmm. I love doing observational check-ins. And so either if it's something... We've, done, we've talked a lot about this with COVID or even just with the increase of racial violence happening in the world. So there's just the fact of like saying, hey, I've noticed that things have been really tough. 
I want to hear how you're doing. Now you can ask that question and someone's answer is like, fine, everything's fine. Everything's always been fine. So sometimes I would say that if we think it's going to be harder for someone to share, leading with your own vulnerability can be helpful. You know, it's been really rough for me and a lot of people I know. How have things been with you? So you've just opened the door to say rough, difficult, hard is an acceptable answer. But if there have been behavioral changes or the ways that someone is interacting differently, you as a leader can say, hey, I've noticed you've been more quiet in our meetings. Is anything going on? Now, we're in a situation where people might be really worried that, oh no, I've been too quiet. Something bad is happening, right? I'm always thinking, this is my therapist brain. It's like, oh, we're raising people's anxiety. So if you're worried about that, add a validation. Like I've noticed you've been really quiet in these meetings and we really appreciate your voice. Is everything okay? So you're not throwing an insult. You're just highlighting, I've noticed this, right? If you feel like a colleague, these are tense things to say. Can we just be real? It's really uncomfortable to ask questions, especially if it's been like, notice you've been a little short with me recently. I'm wondering if I've done anything. I know that I have blind spots. (laughs) Can you let me know if I've said anything to hurt you? Our relationship matters a lot. That's a really uh, vulnerable thing to put out there. And so when we're going to say those things, there is a sense of like being prepared for like, I'm asking this question. It may be a hard answer. Why am I asking it? This will help me grow. This will help me support my team member. So we don't want to be afraid of getting a response that's going to hurt us. It's realizing that the goal is not like now and forever. I will always be hurt. It's like, okay, you're hurt. Listen to that feeling. What is it telling you? Do something to soothe it. Think about how you move it towards growth. That's where we always want to be. We can't avoid getting hurt or having someone tell us something hard, especially as a leader, right? It's like if you've got a big glob of lettuce in front of your teeth and you're about to do a giant pitch in front of the most important client, you need your team to take the risk to tell you, fix your teeth, right? But we don't like to do that, you know? And so I think that's building up the fact that like that tension can be okay. It can be really useful. Yeah. Thank you. Because I do think that those conversations are very hard to have, especially if you're not practiced at having them. You know, the first couple of times, it can be very, very difficult. And I think it often gets avoided because the boss doesn't want to say the wrong thing, especially if you have a male boss and a female subordinate. You know, it's like, God, I just don't, I don't want this to come off the wrong way or whatever. You know, it can be very touchy. So I think having some of that sample language, if you are a manager, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that segment again because you ripped through a bunch of them pretty quickly. And I think there was some really good stuff in there. Yeah. And you can tell I practice these all the time. Like we have lots of examples. You are not alone if you're not sure what to say. Yeah, That's why those examples come so quickly. And if I have to say something that's really tense, even now I write it out. Like I do practice things, especially when I know I'm going to feel more emotional or I'm going to feel really vulnerable or I feel really bad. That just helps me. And I tend to be really open and direct with the people that I lead. And I'll say like, hey, I'm worried this might come off the wrong way. And if it does, let me know. But I don't just wait for them to let me know. I try to really observe, right? These are my team members. I can watch and see like, are they pulling back? Are they shutting down? Okay, I just need to know that. They may not be ready to tell me now, but if I can stay and be open, perhaps they will see that consistency and eventually be able to let me know so we can work together more effectively. You know, something you just said brought back a question I was thinking of earlier and didn't ask. For somebody who is interested in doing work on themselves or in in practicing to get better, how important is writing it down or having a journal or something like that to do this work? Is that something that you recommend to people or are there other ways that they should be doing this sort of self-evaluations? Like, What does it actually look like? Yeah, I like writing it down. One, because the process of writing changes how you look at things, right? I really like getting us out of our normal way of thinking. Like I can have a grocery list or a to-do list rolling in my head. When you get it on paper, reading it and looking at it changes how you feel about it. But not all of us are journalers or writers. Some of the most difficult things I have done to prepare for something is I will actually say it out loud. It's great when someone runs into my office while I'm talking to myself, but it feels different for me to write something to say something. It often feels more emotional. So 
I do think listening to ourselves, that's where writing is really helpful. It gives us a different perspective on things. So if you're not someone who's very introspective and journaling sounds like torture, there is the idea of like, okay, find someone who's in a similar position as you or a therapist or a coach and talk it out. Once you say it out loud, it can feel different. And that allows you to self-reflect on like, is that what I want to say? How am I coming across? What am I thinking? But every time you test it, at least take the time to think through, well, what happened? How do I feel about it? So I think journaling is a wonderful tool to help us grow. Yeah. And to your point, I just have found for myself, like whether it's handwriting it down, typing it out, saying it out loud, just the art of getting it out of your head into the real world in some way makes such a difference because all of a sudden you're like, well, well, no, but that's not really it. It's more like this other thing. And, you know, it just helps you clarify. It's like a filter you put your ideas through, bringing them out into the world. Yeah. It makes you interact with it. And like, we, we like to interact. We like conversation. This is why I like the curious why. It's like, well, why? Why do I feel that way? Well, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. So great. Let's think about it. That gives us insight on ourselves, which could change our responses or reactions or help us be more gracious or about why we acted the way we did. It's like, oh yeah, it was two and I hadn't had lunch. I was hangry. Oh, I need to have snacks in my office. Great. That's a simple solution. But honestly, like is a valid one of like, when we ask why we can be curious, we're really good at being judgmental about ourselves, about others. Like it's a protective defense, but we're always growing. So we can be curious about those mistakes and we can be thoughtful and interacting with those thoughts is so helpful for us. Thank you. I have like two more questions, kind of quick ones, because I know we're coming to the end of time here. If, if you've got an extra minute or two, what are you sick of talking about? I don't think I have an answer to that one. What are you excited to be talking about? I'm really excited to be talking about identity and identity development. I think it's a topic I have been passionate about forever. And it continues to amaze me how how my view and my feelings about having the conversations, whether it be about race or gender or sexual orientation, how it continues to deepen and shift and change in the midst of how our society and the world is changing, or even how I'm growing and changing. So that's maybe that's why I struggle to think of what I'm tired of talking about. I like hearing different perspectives. I learn so much from the different clients I work with because I'm always surprised by what comes up or what I can learn. So I'm trying to think of what I'm tired of talking about yet that I haven't. Oh, Pokemon. I'm tired of talking <laughs> about Pokemon because I have someone in my house very obsessed with Pokemon and I know more Pokemon characters than I care to know about. And I'm really working on continuing to love listening to Pokemon. And I will. I will stretch myself and become an expert because they love it and I love them. But yes, Pokemon is the thing I'm done talking about. So if you have a diverse perspective on Pokemon, please let me know so I can grow in my love. I, I read a lot and watch a lot and listen to a lot. That is outside of my my purview. So I, I can offer no help on that one. But if somebody listening to this does, maybe they can reach out and yes, help give me some help. Find my love for Pokemon. There yeah. you go. Last question. What is the purpose of business? I mean, for me, at least the purpose of business is growing and developing something and stretching that creative side we have, but tapping it into our desire to work with the community, right? Maybe that's an esoteric answer, but I I think that's part of the purpose of business. I'm looking for your authentic answer. So everybody who answers, that's the question I ask at the end uh, to everybody and everybody gives a little different perspective. And it's, it's interesting just to hear how different people think about that question. Because I think, again, questions that don't get asked a lot, like, what's the point of this whole exercise? Mm -hmm. You know, we're all in business. We're all trying to make money. Is that the point? Just like show up and make money? Or is there something else? that we should be thinking about in the work that we're doing and how we do it? Well, I'm assuming for most of us, making money is nice. But in the end, if that was all that was there, we'd probably get really bored. I would agree. Dr. Chandy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your perspective. I think there... One, I learned a ton from this. And I think there's a lot that other people can learn too, especially around trauma dealing with your own trauma, dealing with other people's trauma, and then building resiliency 
around it and being able to go out and face the world with a positive perspective. So really appreciate your, your time and expertise today. Thank you. It was a lovely conversation. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.